Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. I dag skal vi tale med en ung socialistisk økonom, som har sat verden på den anden ende og skrevet især én bog, som har sat noget på spidsen, vi alle sammen har funderet over, men aldrig rigtig fundet ud af, nemlig... Hvad betyder den ekstreme økonomiske ulighed i vores samfund for den fordring om politisk lighed, som er vores ideal? Kan man have et demokrati, hvor folk har lige meget at skulle have sagt, og kan være med til at bestemme og sige fra over for dem, der bestemmer over en? Når det er sådan, at der er så få, der ejer så utrolig meget. Det er det, som Julia Cachet har undersøgt i sin bog, Demokratiets pris, som udkom på fransk og på engelsk, men endnu ikke på dansk. Og eftersom den ikke udkom på dansk, så tager vi simpelthen og udfordrer det hele for dansk publikum i den samtale, der følger her. Well, good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially good evening and welcome to you, Professor Julia Cachet, who is with us from Paris. Hello, thank you. And thank you so very much for taking your time to talk to us. You've written several books. One, of course, that we appreciate about how to save the media. And I can assure you that we are owned by ourselves and there's no one making a profit out of, out of this little media. <laughs> but but the focus of our conversation will be a book that I read a couple of years ago and that I was very, very impressed by. It's called Le Prix de la Démocratie in, in French and the Price of Democracy in English. I think it came out in English a couple of years ago. Isn't that correct? Uh, last year, in the in the middle of the COVID crisis, uh, which was a very bad timing. <laughs> It is one of the big mysteries of our time. I think that we have democracies and that people have the feeling that they live in democracies and they want to be respected as Democrats. And then at the same time, we see growing inequality and we see even people who, who are voting against their own economic interest. We see they're voting billionaires in, and we don't see like like Plato expected that democracy would be the rule of the poor against the rich, but we see this rising inequality in democracies. And it's always very difficult to say what is the connection between political equality and economic inequality. And we have some very, very good studies by Martin Jylands, Benjamin Page, and Larry Bartels that I also read and, and, and talked to earlier, but, but your book is very, very important in this uh, respect. Could you tell us a bit how you came to work with this uh, topic of economic inequality and, and political equality and democracy? So thank you very much for, for the invitation. I'm, I, I'm glad to, to join this, uh, this conversation. Uh, I, I have worked for uh, years on the media Uh, and when I uh, published uh, my book, uh, Saving the Media, one of the things that was uh, at the core of the book uh, was uh, really the uh, idea that uh, we need to democratize uh, the media, to democratize the ownership uh, of the media and to democratize uh, the governance uh, of the media. Uh, at the time, I was always like explaining uh, students uh, that uh, for the same reason why Uh, we put uh, in a number of countries uh, some limits on how much uh, different people can contribute uh, to campaign finance. Uh, we need to put uh, some limits on uh, the share of total media audience a single person uh, can own. And I, I was talking at the time about this uh, campaign finance regulation. And then I, I decided that I, I, I just needed to, uh, to study them. 
uh, in particular because we have this uh, idea in uh, Western uh, European countries uh, that uh, the situation is very, very bad uh, in the US. Uh, and you, 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 you are right to uh, refer to the books by Martin Giddens or Ben Page. I'm a big fan of their, of their books. And in, in The Price of Democracy, I refer uh, to this idea of democracy by uh, coincidence uh, that they have developed. Uh, but all their work uh, is, uh, is just focused on the US. Uh, so we knew that situation was bad in the US, but the idea was to say, oh, but in Europe, you know, everything is okay uh, because we have introduced a lot of regulation and we have uh, limited donations and there are limits uh, to how much Paris can spend or you can, you can spend on a campaign. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, let's look at the data. And I think it's always important to look at the data, and it's why I decided to collect data uh, on US a little bit, but a, a lot on France, on Germany, on Italy, on Spain, on the UK, uh, to, to collect historical data and to study the extent to which uh, this issue of political equality or political inequality uh, is important uh, in different countries. So how do you act? I think it must be very, very difficult to study this relation between money and influence. I mean, of course, you can see who's who are paying for the campaigns or how, how, are, how do they contribute or who, who are subsidizing. And, and you can look at the tax tax advantages that, that they have. And you have some very, very, I think, shocking revelations, actually. For me, they were shocking. But I live in naive little Denmark. So so, so I think, well, everything is, is okay. We, we have democracy. But how, how did you proceed studying this relation? So the, the first thing that I did is that I decided uh, to look at how much uh, different people contributed, uh, depending on uh, their, uh, their income and depending on their revenues. So for example, for France, I took uh, all the tax data. Uh, so I have uh, exhaustive tax data. And in the tax data, I have information on the income of each uh, household. And I also know how much they contribute uh, to political parties. Uh, by the way, I also know how much they contribute to charities. And now I'm more and more working on uh, philanthropy as a tool of uh, political power. But I, I was focusing on on political donations. And then you can uh, look at, so you don't have the identity of the donors, you don't have the exact name of the donors for France, uh, but you, 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 you can look at the income distribution and see uh, which uh, income category contribute uh, how much uh, to different political parties. And the, the first thing that is really striking in the, in the data is when you, you realize that uh, this funding of democracy is completely captured Uh, by people at the top of the income distribution. It was particularly the case uh, in 2017 at the time of uh, President Emmanuel Macron uh, election. And what is also striking is that the, the, the first reforms that were put in place uh, by uh, Emmanuel Macron was uh, in uh, favor of uh, top income people, in particular with the repeal uh, on the, on the wealth, of the wealth tax and the flat tax of, on, uh, on capital. And uh, so this is, the, let's say, The, the work that can be done by by the economist. Uh, and I did a little bit the same for, 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 for Germany, for example, in Germany where the identity of the donors and there are a lot of like corporate donors. So obviously you can document 
the importance of uh, the uh, car industry in donations, uh, the importance of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and, and you can try to link uh, these donations to some regulations that are implemented. Uh, now, on top of this quantitative evidence, it's important to have uh, qualitative evidence. And what is uh, obvious from a qualitative point of view is that uh, when you do all your fundraising activities uh, with people that are at the top of the income distribution, the kind of discussion you will have with these people uh, will be centered uh, to uh, the kind of policies they want to be uh, implemented. For example, the repeal of the wealth tax. And so this is an amount of you know, time. Uh, what is key is the amount of time you will spend with rich donors with respect to the amount of time you will spend with like uh, normal people, and this explains the influence. You do not need to have, um, let's say, direct uh, quid pro quo corruption. You know, this idea that, oh, I'm going to give you this amount of money and in exchange, uh, you will do this law for me. You don't need to do that. Just have a candidate that is going to spend the, the largest part, um, part of his time with very rich people and who is going to care about these rich people much more about than about poor people uh, once he, he came to power. So, so you can show some very strong correlations about who are paying for their campaigns yeah. and who are actually being favored by their policies. Exactly. And, and the correlations that you sh show in your book are really striking. Uh, and and you even you you even you you made a uh, there's a quote in your book that I kept referring to to myself and my daughter and my wife as well that the poor are paying for the political preferences of the rich that you even have a system where there's a tax advantage where where how how do you explain this mechanism that the poor are paying for the political preference of the rich. So it turns out that in France, uh, but not only in France, huh, it, it is also the case in Germany, in Italy, Spain. Uh, it has been the case uh, in a country like Belgium uh, in the in the middle of the 1990s. Uh, but it turns out that in France, uh, we have uh, tax deductions for political donations. And the specificity of France is that these tax deductions for political donations are very high. Uh, they represent 66% uh, of the amount of the donations. So what does it mean? It means that if you give uh, 6,000 euros to a political party, the state is going to give you back 4,000 euros. And at the end of the day, you are just going to pay 2,000 euros from your own pocket. And so if you look at the data, we really realize that the, spent, the state spent much more money to favor the political preferences of the rich thanks to this tax deduction than to favor the political preferences of the poor. On top of that, so if it were only that, first of all, it will, it will be completely unequal uh, because we, we, we see in the data that the poor, because they have less money, they, they, they cannot contribute as much as the rich. Uh, but it is even worse than that uh, in France uh, because it turns out that the tax deduction is non-refundable. What does it mean? It means that if, if you do not pay income tax because your income is too low, you won't benefit from the tax deduction. So if you are poor, basically, you are not going to contribute 6,000 euros to a political party. Uh, perhaps you are going to contribute 100 euros. And in this case, you need to pay the full cost of 100 euros. So we have really put in place regressive uh, tax scheme uh, in which uh, yeah, poor people pay 
uh, to satisfy the political preferences uh, expressed by uh, rich people. And you see it's different for each country. You're very careful to show that each country has specific rules. But it's fair to say that the pattern is the same in all the countries in Europe that you study. I mean, like you said, we always think of America. That's a fucked up democracy, which it is. But 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 but, but it, it doesn't absolve us from, from, from our problems. But, but isn't it fair to say that you see it's very different in Germany, I think, but you see the same patterns all over Europe? Yeah, we see the same patterns uh, all, all, all over Europe with some differences uh, and some changes over time. So, for example, uh, Spain is doing much better since uh, 2014 uh, than before uh, because they have introduced a number of uh, important regulations. In particular, they have uh, forbidden corporate donations. Uh, France, from this point of view, is also doing better since uh, 1995 and the ban of corpor on corporate donations that, uh, than before. Uh, if you look at a country like the UK or a country like Germany, uh, basically, there is no regulation, so it's a little bit like in the in the in the US, just that we we do not talk about it. Uh, there is uh, no limit on donations, and in Germany, there is no limit on spending. In the UK, it's more complicated because we have no limit on donations, but for uh, general election, um, uh, you have some limit on spending. So at the end of the day, the parties are. Uh, collecting a lot of money, but the candidates cannot spend uh, a lot. In Germany, political parties are uh, extremely rich uh, because they receive a lot of uh, individual and corporate level uh, donations. And, you know, this is about like correlations. This is about the feeling. I, I think we need to speak about it because it's, we, we, it won't be possible to uh, identify a direct causal effect of uh, the donations made uh, by, uh, let's say, Volkswagen uh, on the fact that uh, the, the car industry is uh, in Germany is completely unregulated uh, compared to other countries. Or it will be impossible to make a direct causal link uh, between the fact that uh, Philip Moritz uh, is giving a lot of money uh, to uh, to German political parties, and not only, you know, to the uh, CDU, but to the CDU, also to the SPD and to other political parties in, in Germany. But we have that in the data. And then if we look at the regulation of uh, the cigarette industry, uh, the tobacco industry in, uh, in, Germ in Germany, basically this is the most uh, unregulated country in terms of uh, advertising for tobacco, uh, together with Bulgaria, in the entire uh, on the entire European continent, uh, so you know, I, I think we, we we need to be well aware of that. Uh, the good news is that we know how to regulate campaign finance. Uh, the bad news is that uh, we need to have political leaders willing to do so. The, 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 I'm going to ask a question now that cannot be answered uh, plainly, but I just want to hear your reflections on it because. The, the correlations that you describe, they are, of course, part of a bigger pattern where there's an adoration of the rich people and the rich lifestyles. And, you know, in Paris, where you live, the football players are enormously rich and paid for by Qatar. And you have people from the working class coming there to celebrate them. So we're also part of a culture celebrating wealth and not in Marxist term, looking at the rich as 
as enemy. But still, I'm a little surprised that over these last decades, we have a lot of anti-elitist policies and a lot of populist protest. How do you how do you see these other factors shaping discourse and shaping our policies and that that have enabled inequality to rise like, like it has done in, in, in democratic countries? So I think let's move back to uh, Martin Gillens and uh, Benjamin uh, Page uh, for, a, for a second. One of the things they really alight uh, in their book, and in particular Martin Gillens in his first book, uh, Affluence and Influence, is the fact that uh, on average, if you look at uh, citizens' political preferences, And if you look at uh, the policies that are implemented by the politicians, on average, you know, politicians are going to implement policies uh, that satisfy uh, poor people preferences. And then he goes one step further. He says, what is going to happen when the preferences of the poor and the preferences of the rich are not the same? And what he documents is that when the preferences of the rich and the preferences of the poor are not the same, then the politicians are only going to take into account the preferences of the rich. So how is it that democracy works? Democracy works because by coincidence, the preferences of the rich tends to coincide with the preferences of the poor. What I do think is that as of today, with the growing level of economic inequalities, we have more and more divergence between the preferences of the rich and the preferences of the poor, which means that democracy no longer works. And all the populist parties, they are building their popularity on this divergence that is completely striking between the preferences of the poor and the preferences of the rich. And I do think that we need to regulate campaign finance because if we do not regulate campaign finance, we won't solve what is at the beginning of the problem. The fact that despite you have much more uh, poor people than very rich people, politicians, they just take into account the preferences of the very rich because the very rich are the ones uh, who pay for their elections. And you actually have you have a lot of suggestions also in the book that came out last year. Uh, you have a lot of suggestions for reforming democracy, but you have especially one with I think you call them democratic equality vouchers. Isn't that true? Yes. So I think the big issue is uh, is campaign finance and uh, political inequality. So the, the the first thing that we need to do is to put very strong limit uh, on how much uh, rich people can contribute uh, to the political life. And so I say, I, I'm pretty uh, extreme in a sense here, but I say that uh, no citizen should be allowed to give more than $200 a year to a political party or to a campaign. We can discuss, you know, I don't care about like 200, it can be like 150 or 500. But, you know, I think that above a certain amount, it creates inequality because a lot of people, they, they do not have like 500 euros to give to a political party on a given year. So if you want to equalize all the citizens, the first thing that you need to do is to put limit on how much rich people can contribute to the political life. This is the first thing. Uh, 
the second important point, which is a departure point of my research in a sense, is the fact that democracy has a cost. You know, it's a little bit like for the for the media. Uh, very often we tend to like uh, consume newspapers, uh, like uh, watch some videos on the internet, and uh, we we do not want to subscribe. We all have an ad blocker on our computer, so we do not want to pay through advertising. And we tend to think collectively that public funding for the media is a bad thing. And still, we still consume information that is costly to produce. And I think at some point, we should realize that if we do not pay for information, it means that uh, some like super rich people are willing to produce information at a cost, even without any revenue. But because when they do so, they are buying some influence. I think the same thing for democracy. Democracy has a cost, a campaign has a cost, having political parties is costly, okay? Uh, they need to produce ID, uh, they need to campaign, but what is key is who is going to pay for this cost. If we do not want the rich people to pay for this cost, and we do not want the rich people to pay for this cost, because when they do so, they capture the political debate, we need to have public funding for democracy. This is a key thing. And then the question is, how do you allocate this public funding for democracy? And I think the best way of doing so is through these democratic equality vouchers, when, where you give the same amount, so a voucher of, let's say, uh, like $10, you give $10 a year to each citizen that she or he can allocate to the political parties uh, of her choice. It has many advantages uh, compared to today's situation. First of all, it's like public rather than private funding, so it avoids uh, capture. The second thing is that compared to the ta tax deduction we were mentioning before, you know, this tax money only favors rich people. Here, you know, it's like one person, one dollar, one vote. So this is democracy. And the last point that is very important, and I think that is more relevant in like Denmark or France, uh, than in countries like uh, the US uh, or the UK, is that in our uh, multi-party democracies, uh, we see a lot of like new parties that are created from one year to the other. So I think it's good to have like uh, uh, this uh, possibility to form different political parties uh, every year because it will lead to the emergence of new political forces. Your book has the enormous advantage of uh, investigating a problem that's absolutely core to our political societies and that is a very complex problem and then you ha I actually offer some very simple i mean the best meaning of the word simple some very simple solution H how was the book received how, how did anyone pick up on your ideas in in, in france or elsewhere yes in, in in france the book was uh very well received uh, in fact, now in the in the in the course of the uh, campaign for the presidential election, you have a number of people that are uh, arguing in favor of limiting private donations. You also have some like political parties that are pushing uh, for these uh, democratic equality vouchers uh, proposal that I am uh, making. This was also pushed by some uh, non-profit organization such as uh, uh, like Anticor, which is a non-profit organization that uh, fights uh, corruption, or uh, Transparency International, uh, which is an other like non-profit organization that fight uh, against corruption. So you have a lot of proposals uh, that kind of like built on, on this uh, on this book uh, and that are part of the debate. 
uh, I'm a little bit, uh, as of today, you know, the political situation in France is not easy uh, because we have a huge rise uh, in um, far-right political parties. Uh, so I'm a little bit pessimistic as to what will be the result of the next uh, election. I hope it won't be the far right. Uh, if it is not the far right, the, there is very high probability that uh, today's president will be re-elected. And for sure, he won't reform campaign finance <laughs> because he really benefited from this system. But I think it's a good thing that uh, these proposals are part of the debate. And I hope it will lead at some point uh, to, some, uh, to some regulations. These are like simple proposals, not complicated to introduce. I have worked with a lot of MPs on that. Uh, but you just need the good MPs then to be uh, elected and, uh, and like in the in the majority. I, th I think when you look at the intellectual and political life in Denmark, from Denmark or from a leftist point of view, like I do, then you are struck by two very different tendencies. One is that you have a lot of very strong leftist ideas coming out of France. I think it's fair to say that French economist has really reshaped the debate about taxing, inequality, globalization. And you see, it's given me a lot of hope for the power of ideas, actually, seeing how ideas travel from, from, from France. So I think, well, you are such a powerful left and even, you know, a critique of capitalism that is translatable for, from social movements to parliaments. I mean, even looking at Joe Biden's agenda, you can see some influence. Now, uh, Schultz in Germany, you can see some influence. So you have an extreme, I think, very, very inspirational thing happening in France intellectually on the left. And then you look at France politically on the left. And it seems to me that there's nothing happening or that you have Mélenchon, who I think to us is too authoritarian in his own movement to be a, a real interesting socialist candidate. How do you explain what's going on on the left in France for a Danish audience? I will say that uh, the left in power have been captured by money. And I think it has been the same issue, by the way, with the uh, uh, Labour Party uh, in the in the UK and their uh, Tony Blair or uh, with the Democratic Party uh, in Italy at the time of uh, Matteo Renzi. Uh, if you look at uh, what was done uh, under François Hollande uh, presidency, like from 2012 to 2017. There were very interesting reforms uh, from a society point of view, for example, gay marriage. It was a key reform and very important one. But from an economic point of view, there were like no policy implemented in favor of the poor, in favor of uh, reducing inequality, in favor of redistribution. So, you know, poor people were disappointed and they were right to be disappointed because from an economic point of view, the policies that were implemented in power by the left uh, were not favoring uh, poor or middle class people. So the, this destroyed, in a sense, uh, the left wing parties in France, in particular the Socialist Party. Uh, Macron uh, also did it by this, you know, he was elected on this idea that uh, there is no right, and there is no left. Uh, so kind of like a center, like at the beginning he was center left, now he's much more on the, much more on the right. Uh, and what we see that in a sense, this has been documented very well. 
by researchers from the World Inequality Lab, for example, at, at the Paris School uh, of Economics. At the end of the day, you have this left-wing socialist party that are the parties for which uh, people with like low income but high education vote. You have the right-wing uh, party for which people with high income, high wealth vote, and in general, low or middle education. And then people that who have like a low income, low education, they are no longer represented by this uh, traditional party. And this led to the emergence of both the uh, far-right political parties and the fact that uh, we have uh, uh, far-left that is also much stronger as of today in France uh, than the Socialist Party. Uh, now, I would say that uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, he comes from the, the Socialist Party. Uh, he did very well at the, at the last presidential election. Uh, is far from being a perfect uh, candidate, in particular because of what you highlighted, and also because of the number of positions he took <laughs> in terms of international affairs, uh, with respect to Russia, with respect to Venezuela. But if you look at the left-wing electorate, you know for some people there is no alternative in a sense, even that you no longer have like a strong socialist party. So we will see what is going to happen in 2022, but it might well be that he's going to uh, to go up in the in the pools. We 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 do not really know. Uh, what we know for sure is that at the end of the day, all the left wing parties are doing super poorly <laughs> today in France, and uh, the probability that there would be an uh, uh, change uh, in power is uh, kind of super low. I, I think you you've been studying society for many years, and you've. I think it's fair to say that you come from the left or study it from a point of view on the left and has been supportive of the Socialist Party. And and uh, I could see someone with your profile being very disappointed in democracy. I mean, you would have good reasons to that. But the book that that that, that came out last year, I think is is Libre et Go Envoie, is a very optimistic book. And then it's a cheer and you have a, we love optimism, and I should say also that the tone that the, the Prize of Democracy is written in—it's it, not a heavy book. It's written like a light book. So, where where where, where does the optimism and, and the belief that we are progressing come from? I say I'm too uh, young to be pessimistic. <laughs> no, but that's that's true. I think I I I was born in 1984. Uh, the the very first time I voted in France, it was in 2002. Uh, which is the first time when the extreme right made it to the second round of the presidential election. So, you know, first time in my life, I had this, I was 18, I had this opportunity to go and vote. I voted for the Socialist Party. And second round, I needed to vote for the right uh, because the far right uh, was in the second round. I did that in 2002. And I needed to, 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 to do that again in 2017. And I might have to do that again in 2022, which means that out of like three or four presidential elections, I will have voted against someone in the second round rather than being able to choose my own candidate. So either I can decide to be completely depressed and, you know, uh, perhaps I should do some uh, like uh, music or write a novel or like disappear and, and live uh, far from any uh, large cities. Or I can try to put some optimism and 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 find uh, find solutions. 
And in in the sense, I think one of the important things I, I learned uh, from uh, uh, writing the price of democracy is really the the fact that if if you look throughout history, a lot of things that have been done. We have seen a lot of change, some positive, some negative. You know, in the 1970s, uh, the US were doing much better than all other democracies in terms of uh, regulating campaign finance. As of today, the US are kind of a nightmare from this point of view. But the city of Seattle uh, is doing a very interesting thing. Uh, if I look at Spain, you know, Spain has been like a di dictatorship uh, until the, 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 the mid-1970s. Uh, and basically, there were like very few regulation of like campaign finance in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And then you had a change in 2014. And if you now look at uh, uh, the, the, the place in Europe where the, 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 the left is doing the best, I think Spain is a great example. Uh, and the Socialist Party is doing well, and they are doing well with like Podemos, uh, that is a far left party. And you, you have a number of important reforms that have been impl implemented uh, over the, 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 the past few years. So I think we, we can do much better. Uh, we need to do much better. Uh, and I think it's better to be optimistic rather than to say, okay, democracy is not a solution. Because the, the other thing that you look, uh, you learn from history and uh, from uh, looking a little bit at, at what is happening around the world is that uh, non-democratic countries for sure are not doing better. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm not satisfied with the way our democracies work. I think they, they, they do not work very well. But it does not mean that I, I think the Chinese model is better. <laughs> I think it's even worse. So There are a lot of thinking these years, which I think is something that very interesting about how to reform democracy and how to mix different channels of, 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 of influence. Some like Ilan Landemore are suggesting yeah. that you could, uh, you, lotocracy, that, that you could, I, I actually don't know what it's called in English, but you know that you just pick someone yeah. randomly. Yeah. Uh, like like you did for with some of the offices in 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 ancient Greece. So there are there are lots of new ways of thinking about civic panels, citizen assemblies, uh, way of reinvigorating. Because obviously, I think it's fair to say that all the way from Greta Thunberg to Lucia uh, Jun, it's obvious that there is a lot of democratic energy in in our society. And st I think also there are a lot of progressive ideas floating around. And you also have some suggestions for, for reforming representative democracy. Could you tell us about uh, your proposals? Yes. So first of all, I have, I am a big fan of uh, Hélène Landemore's uh, work, even, that, even if we, we, we keep fighting. So we do not agree, <laughs> uh, in particular, because I, I don't agree with it. So we completely agree on uh, uh, our analysis of the situation. We completely agree on our uh, objective, uh, which is to have a more uh, representative democracy. I'm going to describe the rules that I want to implement, uh, but uh, we do not agree on the instrument <laughs> that we should use. And in particular, because I think that if you use a, a, a lottery, you randomly pick candidate, it's, it's a way to say, okay, democracy is, is no longer working. So we don't need democracy. And let's rely on 100 guys that are randomly picked rather than on the choice of like 16 million citizens. And I really think that elections 
and campaigns are an important time where we want to select people uh, that uh, are going to best represent us. So it's, it's where we disagree, but I, I strongly like acknowledge uh, advice uh, everyone we, who did not do so to, to read the, 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 the last book by, uh, by Ellen. So how do you make sure that you have uh, MPs, representative, who look like the overall population? Knowing that as of today, we have a big problem. So before we had like two big problems, on one, we are uh, slowly improving, and on the other one, it's kind of like even, uh, even worse than before. So one problem is the fact that, uh, you know, the majority of the representatives are, are still male and not female, uh, while, you know, like half of the population is made of uh, female. Uh, so you have a deficit uh, in terms of uh, female representation. And the other half of the, of the problem comes uh, from the fact uh, that we no longer have uh, blue uh, collar representation. Uh, if you look at the representation of blue collars, you know, in the different parliament uh, in the world, in the US is below 5%. Uh, in the UK, the UK was doing before for uh, better for years, thanks to the Labour Party, but it completely changed uh, in the 1990s. And same thing, you have like below 10% uh, blue collar workers uh, among the MPs. And if you look at uh, France, uh, you know, as of today in France, you have like three or four blue collar percent of blue collar workers uh, among the MPs. So you really have this uh, huge deficit in terms of like blue collar representation in the parliament. So what do we do to save this issue? So one possibility would be to say, okay, let's randomly pick some representative. And if you do it uh, well, yes, you, you will have representatives that are going to look like the rest of the population. The big issue is that they, they do not have any uh, democratic legitimacy. Uh, what I want to have is the same result, but through elections. And so what can you do? Uh, you can introduce uh, parity, what I call social parity, the same way in a number of countries we have introduced gender parity, uh, which means that you need to have half of the candidates that are female, half of the candidates that are male, you need to have half of the candidates that are blue collar workers, half of the candidates who are white collar workers. And then you have a second rules for each political parties among the elected politicians. You also need to have uh, between, let's say, 40 and 60% female and 40 and 60% like blue collar, just to make sure that the political parties are not going to pick uh, the electoral district uh, where they, they, they have no chance to be elected and to uh, give them to uh, either the women or the blue collars. So it's so this way of social parity, it's within the parties. So elect the voters, they wouldn't change actually. They, they did. It's what they're presented for. Their their options will will be determined by gender and by blue collar or white collar. Yes, exactly. So basically, they, 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 you you won't have like district for blue collars or district for white collars or district for female or district for male. It won't be the Indian way. You have that in India. Uh, in India, they have implemented that for uh, decades uh, when you have reserved uh, seats. And in some districts, you only have. Uh, uh, candidates uh, from like poor backgrounds. Here, like, you know, the, 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 the voters, we have like the, the, the full choice in a sense. Uh, they will be able to elect uh, the, the candidate they, they, they are willing to elect, 
we are just going to make sure that the number of candidates uh, presented by each political parties uh, will be balanced between female and male and will be balanced in terms of uh, social parity. Yeah, I think it, it, it sounds counterintuitive at first because you don't think of equality like that. But then you look at how the actual representation is in society today and you say, well, anyone who, who does agree that's a problem, they should come up with a better suggestion or adopt yours. I have one last question for you. And and I think that and because when I read your book, I was thrilled to read your criticism of the of the philanthropist, because it's like today's hero are people not paying yeah. tax and then they're paying voluntarily to 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 society. And it's been it's been like you know philanthropist has become a new role model. So I just want you to to explain your uh, criticism of, of the philanthropist. So you know it will be my next book. In, uh, that's true. The, the next big one. So the, the uh, uh, in fact, what I'm interested in is all the the, the kind of things uh, rich people can buy uh, if they want to buy influence. Uh, so they can buy media, and it's why we need a regulation for the media industry. Uh, they can buy, in a sense, political parties and candidates through contributing uh, to campaigns, and this is why we need to regulate campaign finance. Or they can buy, you know, education, health, culture, museums by funding all these activities uh, and escaping tax at the same time. For me, in a democracy, if you are very rich, you are going to pay tax and the elected government is going to allocate the tax money depending on the preferences expressed by the voters. As of today, in particular, if you look at the US, but we have that more and more uh, also in European countries, we are pushing the idea according to which that rich people, you know, they do not read, they do not need to, to, to pay tax because they are, very, they are very generous per se. And so they are going to give away their own money And given that they are very rich, it means that they should be like much clever than you know all the other citizens. And given that they are much clever than you and I, they are the best people to decide uh, on which universities they need to fund, uh, which hospitals they need to fund, these kind of things. We know that it is not true. First of all, this is uh, not democratic at all. This is anti-democratic because you give more weight against again, to some people because they have more money. And the second thing is that if you, if you look at the funding of education, for example, funding of research, this gives them a huge political power. Because you know, when you fund research in general, this is not as if you say, okay, I'm randomly going to allocate some money uh, across all the universities. No, you are going to say, okay, I'm going to fund research. This is the kind of research I want. You should make some proposal, then I'm going to pick which kind of research team I want to fund and decide the research I'm going to do. And so then you influence the research. The same way you influence the arts by funding your own private museums in the form of foundation. And I think this is a big problem. And on this uh, a book uh, that is uh, great according to me, 
but was focusing on the US and then I would try to, you know, do the same thing than in the in the price of democracy, look at multiple countries. But a great book is uh, the book that is called uh, Just Giving uh, by uh, Rob Reich that was published a couple of years ago. Well, we look very, very much forward to that book because we're just starting to see the philanthropic wave here in, in Denmark. But there is this enormous adoration of Bill Gates, this fine, fine man who... who so, so we're looking very much forward to that book. Thank you so very much for thank taking the time. For the and thank you for your books. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with the French economist Julia Cachet. Som sagt er hendes bog ikke udkommet på dansk, men den findes som The Price of Democracy, og den kan bestilles hjem i din lokale boghandler. Det tager lidt længere tid end over Amazon. Til gengæld så er du ikke med til at ødelægge verden. Du er med til at bygge en bedre verden. I næste uge skal vi tale med en kvinde, som jeg sætter utrolig stor pris på. Den britiske psykoanalytiker Sally Weintrobe, som jeg mødte til en konference om klimaforandringerne hvor hun gjorde et fuldstændigt overvældende indtryk på os alle sammen, da hun fortalte om problemet med at leve i sandhed, når sandheden er så illevarsende, som klimaforandringerne er. Hun fortalte om, hvordan man skal igennem et moment af klimasorg, for at komme hen til et punkt, hvor vi i fællesskab kan forholde os til klima, uden at komme op og slås, og uden at være ked af det hele tiden. Det er et ret stort problem, men jeg lover, at vi ordner det i næste uge. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.